Welcome to Highlawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. For more information, visit us online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We're so glad you've decided to join us, and now we invite you to grab your Bible, if you're able, as we pray that you will be blessed by the preaching of the truth of God's Word today. If you were to take out your copy of God's Word with me and turn to the book of 1 Peter. Peter often gets a bad reputation. Uh, open mouth, insert foot. And funnily enough, everyone that God has ever used and used well has been in a similar circumstance. No matter, and, and continuing to today, Everyone who is a servant of God is themselves very much imperfect. Peter was a fisherman who is not necessarily known for being truthful. And the others like him, several of the disciples were fishermen, several of them uh, had that reputation, but Peter was one of the inner circle. Peter, and as such, his words get more... Uh, well, they're colorful to begin with, but they get quoted more often because they're more prevalent to the story. Paul was a murderer. John, John was not necessarily outgoing. He and his brother had family issues that the scripture tells us a little bit about. Thomas was a doubter. Even if you look back to the Old Testament, Moses had a fierce temper. David was an adulterer. A lot of the people that, that God had used and used in a miraculous way. Look at Jonah. God called him to do something and he goes, he, he runs to the farthest end of the earth at the time to get away from it. And yet, as much as we've picked on Peter in particular, there's some things that we need to take note of. If you remember in the gospel story, Peter, full of fire and fervor and self-confidence, sees Jesus walking on water towards his, towards his boat. And he calls out, Master, command me, and I will come out to you. And so Peter does what? He steps out. Now, a lot of times when we hear this proclaimed from the pulpit or when we read it ourselves, our image isn't of Peter walking on water. It is Peter sinking. We focus on his doubt. We focus on the warning. We focus on the fact that he turns his eyes off of Christ. He sees the storm. He sees the problem. He fixates and doubt sets in. Fear sets in. And he sinks. But we forget about the fact that for a few steps, someone had enough confidence and faith in the Savior that they were literally walking on water. We forget about the good. We replace it mentally with the bad. But here, as we get to Pentecost in a few weeks, we will see a mighty transformation happen in this disciple's life. Never again will he sink below the waves. Never again will he turn his eyes away from Jesus. The once stumbling, babbling person will become one of the most eloquent Reasoned, powerful speakers recorded in the New Testament. This person who was a nothing, he was a fisherman, 
He was a tradesman. Chances are he had a pretty decent enterprise and made a decent living for himself and his family. So I guess by that aspect of, of worldliness, he was doing okay for himself. And yet, once the Holy Spirit comes upon him, a change sets in that transitions him from someone who has a flip-flop faith. In fact, the name Simon literally means on shaky ground. He goes from being someone who is on shaky ground to being Peter, Petros, the rock. This is the power of God to change the fallen, feeble, fickle, finite person that we are and to transform us into a renewed, regenerate, restored person, complete in Him through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit of God. So let us take that example as we seek now to learn from Him as He, through the power of the Holy Spirit, gives us these two letters. And the letters that we're going to be focusing on have a single main point in mind, and that is how can a Christian live in a world hostile to them? How can a church survive in a society that doesn't like the church? Now remember, we are in a world that is in rebellion against the kingdom of God. The world out there, the three main enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, the world considers itself a part, its own kingdom, its own empire. In fact, the prince of the power of the air, the Bible identifies as who? The devil, Satan, Lucifer. He thinks he's one. He thinks he's on the throne of this planet. He thinks he is the end-all, do-all of all that is power within this place. And yet he is not... He is the rebel. He is setting himself up for defeat against the God who has no rival. Who will not suffer anyone to steal his glory. So in the, in the eyes of the kingdom of God, this world is in rebellion. But while we sojourn here, while we are pilgrims and strangers here, the world sees who is the rebel? The world sees us as the rebel. We're the strange ones. We're the enemy combatants. We're the resident aliens. We are the citizens of another kingdom. We are the members of another dynasty. We are enemy troops on their soil. This is how Peter introduces us to his letter. If you would, starting with 1 Peter chapter 1. Once you get there in your copy of God's Word, say amen. He introduces us, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, let's pause right there because there's actually a sermon in that one brief verse. He calls us what? Exiles. The scattered. He is writing in his own intention. He is writing to Jews who were scattered from Jerusalem out a long time ago and are still resident in foreign land. But he's going to, in a couple of, of sentences, he's going to pick up on that fact and call us for being the same thing. You are not home right now. You are not a citizen of earth. You are a, if you are in Christ, you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Understand that before we take any further steps into Peter's writing. If you claim your citizenship here below, when the day comes, I mean, how many of you have been to the airport with a passport? 
Those of you with the United States passport enter in on the right. Those of you from everywhere else come in on the, the left. Incidentally, I know that there's a lot of jokes about uh, Peter being up at the pearly gates and being kind of a heavenly bouncer. That's not actually what's going to happen, but that's beside the point. That aspect is similar. Are you a citizen of the kingdom or are you a citizen of the place that's in rebellion? We are in a diaspora where our people, our nation, is not beholden unto borders in that old-fashioned way, but we are scattered abroad all over this planet. Verse 2, You who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Christ Jesus and sprinkled, cleansed with His blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. We are living in a hostile world. You are alien residents. You are within, you are rebels in a world in rebellion. You are seeking to be the ambassadors and in a way the soldiers, the agents of transformation, bringing reconciliation between a troubled world and a God who wants to settle all debts, a God who wants to settle that trouble, to bring peace to a place that's in a state of civil war, even within itself. The world we are in, it should be different from the rest of us. What does God require of you, O man, but that you live justly, love mercy, and walk humbly before thy God? This is not what the rest of the world teaches us you are to be like. If, for instance, and I know I'm going to get backlash from this But guys, pay attention, because what it takes to be a Christian man is not what the rest of the world teaches us that men should be like. And that definition is also changing yet again. But when I was growing up, men were supposed to be apt to violence, short-fused, ready to answer a left punch with a right punch, and steal the other kids' school lunch money from them. We, were, we had this kind of a, 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 I'm better than you, I'm stronger than you type of mentality. The Bible has this other way of looking at scriptural manhood. We are to be leaders within our own home. We are to be examples of love and compassion, strength under control, meekness, gentleness, loving compassion, the hands that work, the feet that move, the arms that embrace and discipline not out of a sense of needing to settle a score in vengeance, but of making sure that our children live a productive and healthy life. Women, I hate to say this, but your example has gone the same way. I remember when calling someone a lady was a good thing. The definition of lady, I'm I'm from the South. I'm from Kentucky. I know there are some other Southerners that would claim that that doesn't count, but work with me here. When you call someone ma'am, or say that this person is ladylike. What you're saying is that they're a force to be reckoned with. They own themselves. They have a certain position within society, but yet they're not someone who will flaunt it. They are someone who is gracious. They are someone who is loving. They are someone who minds their manners, but not because they want to make themselves look haughty, but because they want to make sure that everybody else feels appreciated. Hospitality is a way of life. Nurturing. Compassion with love, service the sacrifice. 
That's what defined a lady back when I was growing up. And that's very close to the biblical model. Not someone who tries to belittle others for the sake of themselves. See, as Christians, we are supposed to look different. The image, the exterior foci might be the same as everybody else, but the interior of who we are should be different in your conduct, in your conversation, in your character. Because people listen to you, people watch you. Every move you make, every word that comes out of your mouth, even if it's just the people within your family, people observe you. And if you go in the name of Christ, if they know that you're a churchgoer, if you mention that you belong to the Christian faith, then they really put you under a microscope. And heaven help you if you're a pastor's kid. I was a deacon's kid and I got it. But there's some things that are expected of you. And the world will do it in a very oppressive way. But what categorizes the Christian example, write this down, what categorizes the Christian example and what is your passport, if you will, against the nationality of this world, against the citizenship of this world is the following. And it's also the Christian's greatest weapons. Number one, above all, is the Christian's love. It is the same love that Christ gives to us that we then reflect to others. Again, as we called out last Sunday, that is agapeo. That is the self-sacrificing, unconditional love of God that we then reflect to others. For God is the source of all love. For God is love. So the quality of our love, one, is the greatest weapon that we have in our spiritual arsenal. And two, it's the defining characteristic of us from the rest of the world. For they will know that you are my disciples if you do what? If you love one another. Number two, your conversation. Now, some of us get tripped up on this one easy because we're trying to speak an alien language. And I'm not talking about four-letter words, necessarily. What I am talking about is what you use your conversation for. Do you uplift or do you belittle? Do you teach or do you torture? Are you kind with your words? There's an old proverb that my mother-in-law loves to give me on occasion, and she passes it through my, my wife. May your words be sweet, for someday you may have to eat them. That's a Kentucky proverb if I've ever heard one. But your conversation makes a difference. Your conversation makes a difference. If the world is falling apart around you, and you can still say with a calm voice to your friends, I'm blessed. If you face someone who would declare themselves an enemy to you, and you can still treat that person with kindness, love your enemies. If you can portray that with your words, that makes a difference. Jesus himself said, the world tells you to hate your enemies. You have heard it said to love your neighbors and hate your enemies, but I tell you, love your enemies. Can your words reflect that? Can your words bring truth into a difficult situation, even when it's hard? I hate to say this, but Baptist churches are notorious for this little sin called gossip. We're from the pulpit. We have a really bad habit about espousing every other sin on earth, but we leave that one out because we don't want to step on too many toes. But nevertheless, gossip, backstabbing, using the truth as a weapon to demean somebody instead of a means of encouragement, uplift, and teaching. 
All of that folds into each other. How is your conversation? Incidentally, Matthew 18, remember, if you have a problem with one another, this is how you solve the problem of gossip within the church. Matthew 18, Jesus gives us a three-step solution. Number one, if you have a problem with someone in the church, uh, he says that you go straight to that person and you confront them. In fact, he offers that later on in other passages of Scripture before you even put your money in the offering plate. I'm using Baptist phraseology here. If you have something against a brother or sister in Christ there in that congregation before your money hits the plate, you go to that person. You explain the situation calmly, lovingly, and between the two of you in private, you work it out. In Matthew 18, he goes on to say, if that doesn't work, if there is still something against you too, then you call for an elder of the faith to come in to play mediator. And if that doesn't work, Jesus provides us with a three-strike solution, incidentally. If it doesn't work the third time, then you bring them before the church. And the church as a community of the whole gets together and tries to work it out as one united family. That if there's a problem, you don't play the satanic game of telephone where you whisper something to somebody else and you whisper something to somebody else and you do this evil consensus building behind this person's back and then you try to jump on them. Because how many times have you ever played telephone and the message that you started with ended up as the same message on the other side? It's the same way with gossip. If you start something behind somebody's back, by the time it comes back around to them, and believe me in a church, it will come back around to them, the damage has been done because with the second set of lips that passes on whatever the issue is, it's already been distorted. So what might have been an honest complaint transitions into a lie very quickly. That's why Paul says, don't do it. Don't even start it. That's why Jesus says, ignore all that. Go straight to that person and work it out. Amen? The second thing that makes us different is our conversation. The third thing that makes us different is our work. Write this down. The third thing that makes us different is your work. When we do something, do we do it for ourselves? Do we do it simply for the fact that we need money? Or do we do it as an outpouring of love to God? No matter where you are, no matter what position you hold, no matter what location you're in in this life, or what you do for a living to supply the needs of your family, that's effectively what Paul used to call tent making. You are doing something to supply for yourself so that you have an income and can be self-sufficient. But on the same token, Paul used every opportunity when he was sewing tents together to spread the Word of God. In his work, everything he did, he dedicated to God. We can heed that same example. Peter was a fisherman. What did Jesus tell him? Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now, he had something different in mind, but how many people who were on the banks of the Galilee saw the difference in Peter, in Andrew, in James, and John? How many people, when they came back home, and decided we need to de-stress a little bit. The people in Jerusalem are trying to kill us. Let's go out and let's go fishing. How many of them carried Christ in their hearts with them? How many of them had other conversations? We don't know that. I'm reading into that. I will admit that. But when they came up to the Galilee, I will bet you anything that there was a difference in them and the way that they were perceived from the moment that they set down their nets until the moment that they picked them back up again three years later. Your work, how you dedicate yourself. Do you fulfill your contracts? Do you keep your word? 
Do you provide service for the people that you are helping? Is it all about the paycheck or is some of it about the relationships that you are building with the people that you're working alongside and the people that you're working for? For one of the ways that you can demonstrate the difference that Christ makes is simply by doing your job in the same manner that Jesus would have. Let everything that you do, whether in word or deed, be done as unto the Lord. So in our love, in our conversation, and in our work, that's the passport. It's what identifies you in the, light of, in the view of others as a citizen of the kingdom of God. Verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Isn't it good to know that your salvation isn't kept here on earth? Isn't it good to know that he who is promised is faithful? Isn't it good to know that he who has begun a good work in you, it is he that will bring that unto completion? I am persuaded that he will keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Your salvation is not something that you work for or on, because if you did, you'd mess it up. God takes the burden of your soul in heaven upon Himself. And it's His faithfulness that determines whether or whether or not we enter into the kingdom of heaven, not our good deeds. Our good deeds matter, and we'll see why in just a second. But He is, he even no matter what this world brings on us, folks, we are living in such a, a socially destructive time right now. The concept of what is reality, of what is truth, the concept of what is love is now up for debate. But when the Word of God is challenged to the degree that it is right now, when objective truth has lost its meaning, when the church is coming under rapid fire attack, what I mean to say is the word Christian out there used to mean something. It used to mean that the person that bore that title understood the responsibility that goes along with it and that you could trust on them. You can trust in their conduct, in their conversation, in, your, in their character. You can trust in their love. You can trust that they were a disciple of Christ who was ever learning about Christ, who was devoting themselves to Christ, who was trying to live to become a reflection of Christ. Now we're seen as the oppressor. We're seen as the evil force. It shouldn't really be a surprise. We were promised that in the pages of God's Word. But I remember when being able to say that I was part of the family of God meant that I was loved on the inside of the house of God and respected on the outside because of the amount of work and the amount of myself that I was committing. And right now, all of that is under attack. But what Peter is telling these people in all these different places that he's writing to, what he's trying to explain to them, is even though the Roman machine is hounding you down, even though the Parthian Empire to the east isn't much better, even though the Jews that sit next to you in the synagogue want to get someone like Saul of Tarsus out to kill you, even though all these things seem to be going wrong in the world, 
God will sustain you. God will not let you suffer defeat. God still loves you. God will supply the victory for you. It's already been in, it has, it's already been won through the sacrifice of Christ. Through his blood, you have nothing to fear. No matter how hostile this world becomes to the Christian. No matter how far in a no matter how badly they may attack us. If you are in Christ, your eternity is secured. And nothing will ever strip that from you. God purchased it with the blood of His only begotten Son. So no matter what this world is throwing at us, the victory has already been won. The issue I think that we have to contend with these days is that we've gotten very used to the idea that society is on our side. That when the news reports about a church, it will be in a positive light. Times have changed. And again, I pray it doesn't happen in our lifetime. But we are promised in the Word of God that the day will come when we will suffer worse persecution than what our ancestors did in the times of Rome, in what even Peter is writing here. But he says, no matter what comes your way, take heart, because he who is within you is greater, far greater than he who is within the world. In all this, verse 6, in all this you greatly rejoice, now that, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even through, though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now concerning this salvation, prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. Underline that in your copy of God's Word. Verse 12, if you want to understand why you should study the Old Testament, there it is in one sentence. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even the angels long to look into these things. Peter is very eloquently for a change, saying something that Jesus himself said to, his, to, to the Pharisees. When they asked him, are you greater than Moses? He said that Moses longed for the day that you are now seeing. All the prophets point to Christ. Jesus himself said, the volume of the book is written of me. What he is trying to say here, what Peter is trying to get for, to you is a very simple point. What you are experiencing right now as a Christian was foretold, but don't fear. 
what you are going through right now, what you are seeing on the television, what you are hearing in the news, what is going on with your families, when you see these people being torn apart, when you see drugs uh, destroy families, when you see love being challenged, when you see the family institution itself being deconstructed, when you see the very society that we are born into become crazy, when you see reality itself start to waver, be sure of this, Peter is writing to you. All the prophets hearing the voice of God and putting pens to paper, everything that they heard, everything that they wrote, everything that they went through themselves, that were put to death, that they were tortured, they were mangled, all of that harshness that they went through was so that they could provide a message of hope to you so that when the day came, you would recognize the Messiah. You would hear His voice. You would hearken to His word. Ultimately, you would recognize His sacrifice. You would go to it for your salvation. One day when everything is said and done, Peter tells us that the world that we live in today is a testing fire. When swords are constructed, for instance, scrap metal, or pieces of metal that, that haven't served a function before or are being recycled, they're gathered together and they are put to heat. And in that heat, the impurities rise to the surface as the metal becomes molten and they're skimmed off. Certain things are added and it's folded and then it's heated again. And the stuff that doesn't really fit, the stuff that would make it weak, is tested and tried and burned again. And this pattern goes on and on and on and on until finally it is hardened enough and purified enough so that it can take an edge and hold the edge. And when the time comes before it is sharpened, the swordsmith will take the blade and will set it down on an anvil and he will take a ball pin hammer and he will strike it with a certain amount of force. If it's too brittle, what will happen to it? It will break. If it's too flexible, It'll do what? It'll bend. It has to be flexible enough so that it can spring back into its shape. And it has to be hard enough to make the cut to save its owner's life. That's what testing means in the Bible. Before you are put to use for the kingdom, you will be tried. But he's also talking to it in the fact that this, that you in God's you and God's family, you're not just an instrument. You're a royal ambassador, a royal priesthood, a member of the family of God. And that like going through the refiner's fire produces a work of exquisite craftsmanship with a purpose. We are right now going through a period where we are being tested and tried to see how faithful we will be to see how strong we will be, how adaptable we will be to meet the insanity of what's going on, and yet rigid enough so that we hold on to the truth that we always have known to be true. We're in the fire. The dross will be consumed. But my prayer is, as the old song goes, the gold will be refined. And that when the time comes, you, as the disciples of Christ, will be able to stand by the truth that you have committed yourself to and hold on to all the trials that we're going to face together and be victorious in them.
Now you heard the vision this morning to have this place filled again, but not just with numbers, with new Christians, new salvations, new co-laborers in Christ who receive the Word of God willingly, who give themselves to Christ in all that they are, who hear the clarion call of salvation, and who are discipled so that just as you all are going through the fire and are holding firm, holding secure, being loyal to each other as the family of God, they too will be your brothers and sisters in Christ. And when the time comes, we will stand together united and strong. And that can only come if we see the situation through faith instead of fear, if we rely on God's wisdom and not our own, and if we hold firmly to the truth, faith over fear, truth over the lie. And from the moment that I became your pastor, this has been the one verse that was preached to me here that I've tried my best to be a hallmark, to make a hallmark. That while you are disciples and while you are learning together, that we do our best in all things from Scripture to preserve the spirit of unity in the bonds of peace. Not just students together. Family. They will know you are my disciples if you love one another. May they see that love. May they crave that love. May they come to take part in that love. And all God's people said. Heavenly Father, as we close the service of the word and enter your time of invitation, Lord, we do dedicate it and ourselves into your hands without reservation. If any are gathered here today that have yet to come to know you in that free pardon of sin, if any, uh, Lord, just need a special touch of you because they have lost their sense of hope or they have grown accustomed to the fear, they have perhaps grown blind to you who are the solution, or whatever the case may be, I ask that you would draw them close to you, that in the sacredness of this hour you would forge us as a family, that even when the last hymn is sung and the last amen is declared, Lord, that we would not scatter to the four winds, but that we might remain in fellowship with each other, holding each other in, in our hearts as you hold us in yours. Lord, help us to be the people you've created us to be, the workers in your kingdom that you have called us to be and redeemed us to be. For it is in the matchless name of Christ we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us at High Lawn Baptist Church. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. At High Lawn, we believe that when you love God, you share His Word. When you love others, you spread the gospel. We would love for you to join us next time, and if possible, to join us in person. To contact or learn more about us, to donate to our ongoing ministry, or most importantly, to learn about the salvation offered to you through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, visit us at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. Once again, thank you, and God bless you.